As we come to the end here of 2 Peter, we see the verse where I got the, the phrase that I said in the beginning when we first started looking at the book was the point of the whole book, and that is to grow up into God, God's true grace. If I were to say to you, I don't know, when you're 10, 12, 14, grow up. You might take offense at that. You might, if you didn't take offense at it, say, how? What does that look like? Peter is getting at the point that we need to grow up, but he's saying there's some necessary steps along the way. He has four verbs in these verses. Be diligent, regard, be on your guard, and grow. And so when we see this idea of being diligent, Going back to that illustration of if you, uh, if you are trying to teach your kids or someone younger than you how to be more mature, what's one of the things that you would point out as, as one of the really important uh, steps in the process or things that has to be true to arrive at that point of maturity? You've got to be diligent, right? But it's not just a generic sort of diligence. It's not just working hard. It's working toward a goal. It's working toward a goal of having no basis for accusation at the end of verse 14. So let's say that you had a parent or a boss or someone who's in charge of you and they said, hey, I want you to do this and I'm going to come back and check on it, but you don't know exactly when they're coming back and check on it. What does that usually look like? It looks like, for many of us at different points along the way, I think I can predict when that person's going to come back and check up on me so I'm going to do whatever I want for a little while, and then I'm going to rush around madly and make it happen right before they show up. How well did that work out for you guys if you've ever tried that? Oftentimes, we can't predict the, the moment the person comes back. They come back unexpectedly. Or it takes longer than we thought to get ready, and so we're not as ready as we had hoped to be by that moment when they check up on us. There's the idea, I think, connected with that in verse 15 of regarding God's patience in a particular way. It would be easy, going back to that same scenario, you need to grow up, you need to be mature, you need to be working toward these goals, how do I do it? Well, the first step is be diligent to be ready. But in order to be diligent to be ready, you have to have a particular understanding of the person who is coming back to check up on you. Let's say, and I know that I've done this as a parent, let's say that you told your kids to do something and you know that they haven't done it yet and you give them a little bit more time to see if they will follow through. Like maybe they forgot about it, um, maybe they're doing the mad rushing around and you're giving them a little bit chance, you said I'm going to check up on you at 2 and you give them till 2.15 or something like that. If the person that's being checked on has the attitude the waiting is an excuse for me not to ever do the things that I'm supposed to, that's a misunderstanding of the character of the person who's doing the checking. So be diligent to be ready, but don't misunderstand the delay in the checkpoint as being bad character or that the person in charge of it has forgotten to, to look in on you. And then we have this uh, phrase where it talks about be on your guard. You might have a friend that comes over and your friend might say something like, hey, let's go down the street and play at the park. Hey, 
let's go out and, uh, I don't know, just go for a drive. You're not going to, you mean, your boss probably isn't going to come back for the next little while. You could probably get away with being gone for a two-hour lunch, whatever it is, right? You not only have to be diligent to be ready and understand the character of the person that's going to check on you, you also have to watch out for people who are going to try to drag you away from going down this good direction toward what you're supposed to be doing and are going to try to persuade you to either believe things that aren't true about that person that's in authority over you or that it's not important to be ready or that this is the way to get ready instead. Because you're not going to get to verse 18 where it says grow if you're not first being diligent regarding God's patience in a particular way, being on your guard against those that would drag you away from where God wants you to be. All those things are necessary before we get to the goal of growing into what God wants us to be. I think from this passage, we basically have the idea that we need to get ready and be on your guard. Get ready and be on your guard. Diligently get ready for Christ's return, verses 14 and 15. Since you look for these things, what is these things? Well, we go back to verse 12, for example, in verse 13. The coming of the day of God, a day of judgment, and a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since you and I are to be looking for these things, we will be diligent. We get ready, we're diligent to get ready by starting and continuing a relationship with God. Why do I say starting and continuing? That word peace in verse 14. Think about what it says in the book of Romans. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the initial point of salvation. If you believe in Jesus, you now have peace with God because Jesus has paid for your sins in your place and God has worked in your life. You have to begin a relationship with God. Otherwise, there is no peace. But you have to continue a relationship with God, and that's where it says, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless. That's the whole process that sometimes we describe by the longer word sanctification, or being holy, or Christ-likeness, or any number of phrases that we pull from all of the ways it's talked about in the New Testament that point to the fact that you and I are supposed to not just, I'm good with God because of this one-time event, so now I'm just going to sort of meander through life until I see God. But this one-time event is supposed to transform my life such that I was going my own way and loving things that I loved and doing whatever I felt like, and now my life is completely changed and it's oriented toward being pleasing to God. I used to lie, and now I tell the truth. I used to lust, and now I say I will be pure. I used to be greedy and stealing, and now I will give. Like, all of those sorts of transformations have to take place in our lives. Otherwise, this one-time event that we're pinning our expectations for the future on is either of very little worth to us or not real at all. If you say, I prayed a prayer, and I'm good with God, and now my life just continues the way that it was, you probably don't really know God. And if you get lazy about the process of being ready for seeing God, then we go back to what Peter said earlier in the book. 
He who is not diligent about these things has forgotten his purification from his former sins. Or in chapter 2, you've gotten sucked into this, uh, the lies of false teachers and those who in their own self-righteousness would, would um, teach things contrary to what God has said. Either you've forgotten that you know God, possibly because you've gotten drawn into all these false teachings, possibly because you've just said, you know what, I really enjoyed sin and I don't really want to give it up all the way. You have to start a relationship with God, peace. You have to continue a relationship with God, spotless, blameless. And this is really the point of what God is trying to accomplish in his people's lives. Ephesians 5, why does God save people? God saves people. I think we have this image in Ephesians 5 of like, hmm, this girl in her late teens, early 20s, who's just been very pure and devoted to God and all that her whole life, and now she's getting married. I think if we set Ephesians 5 against the backdrop of the Old Testament, there is a parallel of where God took Israel, who basically prostituted herself with all of the nations, their gods, and even physical acts of immorality, and God kept coming back over and over and over again to drag her back to himself? I think that's the picture that we see in Ephesians 5. God's not taking the really good people and saying, it's your wedding day, there's no scars, there's no problems, there's no issues. I think Ephesians 5 is, you were sinners. You were unfaithful and immoral and wicked, and God took you, and now God is purifying you, not so that you always have been spotless and blameless, but so that you will be spotless and blameless. And that's the amazing power of the transformation of the gospel. It starts with that peace with God because He's taken away the penalty of sin, and it continues throughout the course of our life. As He breaks sin's power, we put sin to death by His help, and He changes us so that we become more and more like Him and less and less what we used to be. But like I said with verse 15, we're not going to be diligent to get ready if we misunderstand the way that God relates to us. Going back to my illustration, you're waiting for someone to come check your work. They haven't shown up. Time to goof off. Or time to keep working harder. If we regard the patience of God as salvation, we are going to, by His help, strive to draw closer to Him until that moment that He comes back for us or we go to Him. We're not going to say, I've done all the good for God I need to do, I've done the bare minimum, I'm just going to coast my way through the rest of my Christian life. The apostles all agree, Peter and Paul, the ones listed here, that God's delay in returning is a sign of God's mercy. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as Paul also wrote to you. But here's what happens. If you and I fail to regard the character of God in a particular light and look at it as an excuse to be lazy or not to be ready or to get away with things because he hasn't shown up yet, and then we'll just sort of like clean up really fast and everything will be great, First of all, we're basically like people who say, well, I'm going to live for myself my whole life and then get saved right before I die. And that doesn't work because you don't know the day or the hour. Today is the day of salvation. And if we have that kind of an attitude, do we really love God? Because 
If you have a good relationship with a parent or a boss or an authority figure, your goal is not to do the bare minimum just to get by so they're not angry at you. Your goal is to do things that are pleasing to them. So for example, um, this is maybe a silly illustration. My dad really, really disliked when we would make peanut butter and jelly and then throw the peanut butter knife in the sink. I could rationalize it and say, well, I put the knife in the sink instead of leaving it on the counter. Or I could say, if I really care about what pleases my dad, I'm going to wipe the knife off and put it in the dishwasher. There's compliance and then there's obedience. There's doing what I have to do and there's love and a good relationship with someone. Here's what's easy for people to do. Paul talks about the fact that God's patience is salvation. Peter talks about the fact that God's patience is salvation. Peter says, regard God's patience as salvation. But he says there's the possibility, verse 16, that there are things that are hard for us to understand. People who don't have a good relationship with God look for things that are hard to understand and use them as an opportunity to drive a, re a wedge into your relationship with God. Is God really good? Why do you let that person you love get sick? Why do you let you lose your job? Why did all of these dreams that you've had your whole life, like this is the one thing I wanted to accomplish in life and it doesn't happen. Why did that happen? Is God really good? If God is not really good, you don't really need to worry about when he's going to check up on you because maybe he's not a God worth serving anyway. Or we start to play lawyer and we get really specific about phrases. Well, this phrase says this thing. And this phrase says this thing. So we can't actually know what this means. Here's an easy way to illustrate this. If you tell your kids, no running in the house, what is the intent of that statement? The intent of that, or if your boss tells you, no eating your lunch at your desk. The intent of that statement is not to parse that out and say, well, I can't run, but I can skip and hop and jump throughout the house. It's not to say, well, I can't eat my lunch at my desk, but I can eat snacks at my desk. Because we know the point of what they're saying, right? The point of what we're saying is, don't be making a commotion in the house. Now, we can argue whether that's what you're supposed to do or not in the house. I'm just using it as an illustration. And we can argue whether it's fair for your boss to say you can't eat your lunch at your desk. But my point is, if your boss says don't eat your lunch at your desk, we know that he also is excluding, by implication, snacks and a bottle of pop and all those sorts of things, right? We don't have to get this lawyer sort of attitude and say, well, he didn't specify I couldn't do this, so that's an opportunity for me to do what I want. The way that that ties into what we're seeing here is we can misunderstand God's patience as salvation and see it as an opportunity to find a little wedge that lets us do what we want and not get ready for him coming back. And Peter says that's the attitude of someone who's untaught and unstable, someone who's immature. the people who are always looking for a way of getting off the hook for things and for ways to do what they want, even when they know it's not really what they're supposed to be doing, those are not the people who are doing well in their jobs and who have a really good relationship with their parents and things like that. Those are the people who are doing their best to live in a way that's selfish 
and do whatever they want whilst appearing to comply with what those over them say they're supposed to do. Peter says, diligently get ready for Christ's return. Diligently get ready for Christ's return. Starts with a relationship with God, continues in growing closer to God, has a particular attitude about what God is like, and doesn't look for excuses to get off the hook for doing things that we don't like because we really want to be able to do them anyway. But not only should we diligently get ready for Christ's return, but you and I should be on our guard against falling away. Peter says, you therefore, beloved, just like he said in verse 14, therefore, beloved, these are people he has a relationship with. These are people that he's admonishing as a, a father and a pastor and, and all of those sorts of things. Knowing this beforehand, knowing what beforehand? That there are people who would distort God's word. All of the thing about false teachers in chapter 2. Those who are the mockers in chapter 3, who come with their own lusts, ignoring the way that God works in the world. Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard against falling away. Knowing that some are going to twist the truth, watch out for their lies. And here's the thing that I think we often forget. Sometimes the ones who are twisting the truth is ourselves deep down in our hearts. It's easy for us to assume it always comes from the outside. But oftentimes, the ones who are rationalizing a particular thing, this can be a series of thoughts that you and I are having deep within our hearts and come, trying to come up with excuses. Well, God doesn't really care if I sin in this way because 90% of the time or in all these other areas, I'm doing what's pleasing to Him. Why do we start going down that path of rationalizing those sorts of things? Because we don't want to give up whatever that sin is. I serve at church. I tell people about Jesus. I would help anybody out in a moment of need. But I'm going to speak in a demeaning way to my husband or wife. I am really diligent about singing eagerly at church. And I am always looking for ways to minister to people when something is going on. But... You know, I have this, this, this little kind of a problem with um, just not being honest. We start to rationalize the sins that we love, see them in the people around us and make a big deal of them, and minimize them in our own hearts and lives because we are not on our guard. Going back to the illustration at the beginning. You're diligent to be ready when the person comes, you have an understanding of what the person is like so you don't misinterpret whether they show up on time or not. And then you're watching out for all of the things that would lead you away from being ready for that person to come back. Things that originate in your own life, things that originate from people around you. It could be the words of false teachers. It could be a conversation that you have with someone. It could just be the things that you think deep down in your heart. Whatever it is, you need to be on your guard so you're not carried away by error. We talked in chapter 2 that we need to know the path to following away so that we don't stumble down it. And I said at that point, I think it's easy for us to say, well, if we really know God, we will never fall away, so we need to worry about it. But that assumes a couple of things that aren't true. One is, 
that we are for sure in a good relationship with God, as in, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have a relationship with God, and the fact that there are passages of Scripture that say that there are people that were thoroughly convinced they knew God, that Jesus says, you have no part with me, should make us be not should make us not be cocky about this idea like, I know for sure that I have a relationship with God. Confident, yes. Proud in ourselves, absolutely not. Because that then leads us to this attitude of coasting and laziness and letting things creep in. The other thing that I think it assumes about this idea of falling is not just, do I or don't I have a relationship with God, but the fact that there are people who genuinely have a relationship with God who can do some really terrible, sinful things. If, for example, 2 Peter 2 is saying that Lot had a relationship with God, which there's some points of contention on that, was he righteous in contrast to the people around him, or was he righteous in the sense that he actually had a relationship with God? He's not a great role model, right? And so it might be easy for us to think, well, I'm on my way to heaven, so it doesn't matter that I mm, break up my marriage or I just am generally doing all sorts of terrible things in the course of my life. As long as I get to heaven, that's good enough. And we can never be at a point where we're satisfied with just good enough in our relationship with God. Knowing that some will twist the truth, watch out for their lies, and watch out so you don't get carried away by their lies and fall away. And then we come to verse 18. Get ready and be on your guard so you can grow up in God's grace. It's supposed to grow in grace and knowledge. What does this grace and knowledge look like? Well, God's grace is the basis for any of the good things that God's doing in our lives. If it wasn't for God's kindness that we don't deserve, none of us would be here having a relationship with God. And so, if we ever get to a point of pride where we say the reason I am walking with God is about me, then we have forgotten the attitude of humility that we need to have here. We need to grow in God's grace. We need to grow in knowledge. And here's the thing. It's really easy for us to see knowledge and think facts. And there is a reality that you and I need to know facts in order to have knowledge. But there's also the sense that the word knowledge in the Bible is used often in connection with relationship, not just encyclopedic information. So if I were to pick random people in the congregation, I would be like, well, Jonathan's wearing glasses. Bob is bald. Mary's wearing a cream-colored jacket thing. Those are just facts. Does that tell me anything about the person? No. If I were to say, Maggie likes art. If I were to say, Margaret likes martial arts. Those are facts that tell me a little bit more about the person, but that still is not the same thing as having a relationship with any of those people. If I were to say, Braden is compassionate, that's getting closer to what we're talking about. 
Do you see the difference between knowledge that's external things or interests and hobbies versus what a person is actually like? That is then, then leads to an ongoing relationship with that person? We're supposed to grow in God's grace every day, humbly asking for His help, because we absolutely cannot walk this on, on our own. And we're supposed to grow in knowledge and actual true relationship with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The things that are true about Him, the prophetic word that was spoken that we talked about from chapter 1, all the things we saw from 1 Peter as well. Grace and knowledge, grow in those things, be mature in those things, so that we get to a point in our Christian lives where we don't ever say, I have arrived. Because Paul, uh, remember what he said? I don't count myself to have attained, but I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So you might have been following God for 30 or 40 years, you should not have the attitude quite reasonably until the moment you're about to stand before God that you have done a good job and you're ready to go. What I mean by that is we see Paul when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, I've run my course, I've finished it, I'm ready, right? But right up until the moment when his death and execution is, is right there, he says, there's more work for God to do in my life. So we don't have this attitude that we have arrived but we should get to a point where we are no longer in a mode of having to be checked up on with everything, right? We should get to a point in our Christian lives where we don't need somebody to come alongside and say, hey, did you read your Bible this week? Did you pray this week? Did you uh, do what was pleasing to God this week in order for us to think that those are priorities in our lives? We should get to a point where we're just doing those things on our own. We shouldn't need other people to just constantly badger us about things to get to a point where we're living in a way that's pleasing to God. How do we get to that point of maturity? We have to be diligent and not coast. We have to know what God is like. We have to watch out for those who would drag us away from the right course. And then by God's grace, we're growing each day in this maturity that becomes more and more like Jesus. Peter says... Grow in God's true grace. What's the ultimate goal of all these things? Verse 18, To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Think about Peter's own life. Peter is the guy who is, by all accounts, the one who's likely to succeed in terms of leadership qualities and in terms of like getting things done, right? You look at all the disciples, they're milling around. Peter's like, hey, this is what we're going to do. Jesus is on the, on the sea. Peter's like, hey, let's get out of the boat and go see him. He stepped out and he often fell hard, but he was the one that, from a human perspective, of all the disciples, was likely to succeed because he was willing to work hard and get things done. But do you know what happened? When Peter denied Christ, God used that experience to break his pride and show him Peter, you are never going to succeed on your own. And when you are overconfident in yourself, you fail utterly. And after that moment, what do we see? We see a Peter who is confident in God, but a Peter that knows this isn't happening because of me. This is happening because of God. You know what the end result of that is? Who gets credit for the work that God did at Peter on the day of Pentecost and in the building of the early church? 
Now, the Catholic Church would say Peter, but they're dead wrong. This passage is saying God's the one that should get credit for everything that happened in Peter's life. From that moment when he denies Christ to when Jesus restores him to ministry to all the things he does until he gets crucified for following after Jesus, God gets the credit for it, not Peter. And that's a part of this maturing process that God is working in our lives. We want to be known and recognized for ourselves. It's a temptation I have to guard against. I, deep down, want someone to say, oh, that was a good sermon, or hey, you really encouraged me, or something like that. But if that is my driving motivation instead of God doing the work that He wants to do in your hearts and lives and mine, I am not serving Him well because I'm trying to do it in such a way that I get the credit instead of God. And God is a jealous God. He will not share His glory with another. And you don't want to be against God or His enemy in a situation like that. The same is true for each one of us. We are prone to pride and self-sufficiency and and trying to get other people to recognize us. Oh, so-and-so is a wonderful Christian. So-and-so really walks with God. So-and-so is just such a giving person. Now, I hope those things are true. But if you are living your life that way, just so people recognize you, you're in the category with the Pharisees, and Jesus had some pretty harsh words for them. Or say you're not in the category with the Pharisees, you're in the category with the sinners, but then you're trying to justify your sin before God. Neither of those are good places to be. Because the self-righteous and the sinful have no part with God. Peter is saying God's glory is the goal and the focus of all these things. So just to review what we've seen in these verses, and I think in the book as a whole, are you coasting through your walk with God, just doing the bare minimum? Are you being diligent to get ready? Do you have the attitude, I'm going to take three minutes to read my Bible today, and however far I get in those three minutes, that's good. I'm not trying to bind your conscience with some kind of legalism that says every last person has to read the same amount of the Bible or think about the same amount of the Bible every day. For one person, it might be a verse or phrase. For another person, it might be a chapter. God is not going to say, did you do the same as this other person that you know from church? God is going to say, did you strive in your relationship with me according to all of the things uh, that I have equipped or burdened you with in terms of ability to read and listen and pay attention in terms of whatever else? But are you striving to draw closer to me through my word? It would be easy for us to say, you know what? I prayed for my food today. I'm good. I don't have to talk anymore to God. If your conversation with someone in your family consisted of, hey, thanks for finding my shoes. Hey, thanks for uh, opening the door for me. Hey, thanks for picking up the thing I left on the floor. That's it. That's your whole conversation for the entire day. What kind of relationship of that is that? You and I should get to a point in our walk with God where we are eager to talk with Him all day long. So are you coasting through your walk with God, just doing the bare minimum, or being diligent to get ready? It comes through encountering God through His Word, by walking with Him in prayer, and by fellowshipping with one another. Again, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I'm not saying you have to get up at four in the morning and pray for three hours before you start your day. Most of us are not in a place where that's really our struggle, right? Most of us are in a place where we're like, 
yeah, I probably need to pray more than 20 minutes a day. When it comes to fellowship with other people, most of us are not in a place where we're so consumed with ministering the needs of people around us and all those sorts of things that we're like, you know what, I need to back off a little bit. I don't mean busyness, I mean actually ministering to people. I need to back off a little bit. Most of us, myself included, we could, we could step it up a little bit. Instead of, and again, it's not, it's not sinful to talk about things like the weather or all those sorts of things, but when we stand before God, He's not going to really care did we understand, uh, did we, or are we up on all the things that happened in sports this week? Are we up on all the things that happened in weather this week? Are we up on all the things that were just like basic mundane things? And I'm not saying we can't ever talk about them. I'm just saying if that's the, the depth of our conversations, if it never gets past that, we're not really fellowshipping with people because fellowship involves pointing people to God on the basis of the relationship that we have with Him and they have with Him. So don't just coast through your walk with God. Are you watching out for the many lies that go around us? Are you getting swindled into every false idea that pops up online or that people are talking about or whatever else? Um, I'm kind of tying it back into chapter 2. I think that there are two extremes. There are people who are extraordinarily gullible about everything, and as long as someone says, Jesus, we're like, well, they must love God. There's lots of people who say Jesus who have no part with him. There's lots of people who say Jesus to manipulate you. There's lots of people who say Jesus just because they think that that's the right thing to say. We can also come to this extreme over here where we immediately doubt the motives of anyone who says Jesus and we become hypercritical of everyone because they didn't say it in exactly the right way. We assume the worst about their intentions. God wants us to be in between those two points, not getting sucked into new, every false idea out there, but not getting so... Mm, particular about things that we don't recognize where someone is at in their walk with God and start with that point and see God help them change from there. Let's say you're talking to a new believer. Um, you're talking to someone who hasn't been walking with God very long. It probably, um, it probably is not super important for them to know all the nuances of the hypostatic union. You probably don't need to get into arguments about, you know, uh, there was uh, this guy and he basically said that the blood of Jesus was like different than human blood and all these sorts of things. Like, that's not really what they need. It might be what they need and if it comes up, great, talk to them about it. What they need is, what does it look like to talk to God every day? What does it look like to think about what God has said? What does it look like to participate in fellowship with other people? I'm not saying you don't get to a point where you occasionally have conversations about more specific, in-depth points of doctrine. I'm just saying we've got to recognize where someone is at and say, what is the need that they have right at the moment in their walk with God? How can I help them with that? Don't be gullible. Don't be hypercritical. Recognize where someone is at in their walk with God and help them take the next step. Don't coast through your walk with God. Watch out for the many lies that go around you and I need to be diligent to get ready, focusing on what's true so we don't fall away. Then we are in a place, as the theme of the whole book points at, to grow up into God's true grace. Let's pray. Father, so many of the things that Peter points out are things that, as I look back over the course of my life, there have been moments, I think, like Peter 
I know, like Peter, that I have been proud and self-sufficient. I have uh, thought that the extent of my Christian walk was basically me knowing lots of things, memorizing verses and having the right answers to Bible trivia and showing up to all of the events and all of those sorts of things. You want a whole lot more than people around us thinking that we're in a good relationship with you because we do all the right stuff. The irony is that I think that on, in those moments when I have been really most proud of doing all the right things are also the moments when I was least diligent against sin. Obviously, I'm in a good spot with God because I'm doing all these things for God. I'm telling people about Jesus, and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm doing this and the other. And then I would try to rationalize, well, this sin is okay because I'm doing all these other things, or that sin is okay because I'm doing all these other things. Father, help us to be just straightforward in our walk with you doing what pleases you regardless of what everyone around us thinks, doing what pleases you whether or not anyone else sees, and in fact maybe going out of our way so that they don't see because the goal is not to be recognized by them. Stir our hearts so that we hate sin and we love you with all of who you are, all of who we are. Help us to grow up it is too easy for us to stop striving to grow closer to you. Maybe because we would consider that we've been Christians for a long time. Or maybe because it seems like hard work and we're tired. Or maybe because there have been circumstances in our lives that have tested our faith. And we thought that we've weathered the storm, but we're still struggling with that. Whatever the obstacles in our hearts to really and truly growing up in maturity and following after you, I pray that you would help us to be diligent to be ready for you to come back, not to misunderstand the timing of your return as an excuse to be lazy, not to get caught up in the false ideas that are so prevalent around us, even in our own hearts, but to grow in maturity remembering that we've been purified from our former sins, adding to our faith the things that you want to see added to it, collectively growing up together so that you receive glory. Pray for your grace in all this. Amen.